Get ready for the NFL Draft with ESPN Radio's coverage on the Keyshawn, J. Will, and Zubin Show weekdays from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern, bringing you insights from former number one NFL pick himself, Keyshawn Johnson, along with co-hosts Jay Williams and Zubin Mahenti. KJZ is also available as a podcast after each show. Don't miss Football Americas, the new soccer debate show where Hercules Gomez and Sebastian Salazar cover the U.S. and Mexican national teams throughout the season. Stream new episodes every Monday and Thursday only on ESPN+. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I'm Dominique Foxworth, and my dilemma is Mother's Day. It's coming up, and I haven't figured out what to do for my wife yet. Like, my mom, it's fine, whatever. I'll give her a card, tell her I love her. We're good. But the mother of my children, I feel like it has to be something special, particularly after this year where momming got multiplied by like three. So it's quite a dilemma because everything I think of is not quite enough. Okay, so this is a good one. First of all, you have to figure out if your wife's love language is gifts or acts of service. If it's gifts, it's really up to you to figure out what kind of gift she will feel your love through. Is it super expensive? Is it thoughtful because it's, you know, something about a memory you two share together? That that one's on you. But if it's acts of service, I think you pointed out aptly that this has been sort of mom jail the last year plus. Uh, a lot of moms struggling to have the kids underfoot all the time if they're not going back to school. So time alone is the most precious commodity. Um, so I always say a spa day. You know, something luxurious that she wouldn't do for herself. Not just a mani-pedi, but a day with a couple treatments, a massage, a facial, you know, stuff like that. Maybe some thoughtful add-ons like champagne between services where she can sit in the lounge and read some magazines for an hour in between. Um, You could get the grandparents to watch the kids for a weekend, take a weekend away together, or even just have a staycation at home where you get to sleep in and drink a bunch of wine and not worry about the kids being around. those are always my tips. It's nice to get things, but the, the things I like the most usually are experiences that either we can do together or something that feels really thoughtful and luxurious that gives her a chance to just get away and not be bothered. Grab a coffee, take a dump, do whatever she needs to do and get to do it alone while being pampered. Well, that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Hope you're all hanging in there. And like me... Your spirits are a little up, getting some good news about vaccine updates, mask mandates kind of loosening for people who have gotten the jabs. Warmer weather places like here in Chicago always springs up my mood. Um, although I will say that last week I had a real scare that I had COVID because I my nose was totally runny. My eyes were watery. I just didn't feel right. And some of that was anxiety from, first of all, thinking I had COVID. Um And then starting to like do the thing where you look on Google and every symptom, you're like, I feel like I have that. Um, It's allergies, which I have never had before. And I would like to apologize for all the things I've never said aloud, but I've thought when people have complained about allergies. I always thought it was just like kind of annoying, um, which it is, but it is more than just kind of annoying. 
it sucks. Like last week, my entire head felt completely full of snot and I was trying to do a radio show and having to turn off the volume every other question or comment to like blow my nose or at least keep it from like literally dripping onto my computer. Um, And then I got better, mostly stayed inside. It was cold for a couple of days. And then yesterday took like a 90 minute walk with my dog and I was an hour later my head is completely full of snot and I'm like oh okay I did get a COVID test by the way it was negative I stayed away from work I postponed one of my around the horn appearances and moved it back for later just in case but it was all clear it was allergies and my apologies to any of you who I did not give enough respect and empathy for during terrible allergy sinus hay fever whatever it is uh it's not fun. I'm not into it. Um, but I am discovering all the many over-the-counter helpers to keep me from snotting my way through this interview. Um, which is with Dominique Foxworth, who I've been trying to get on the pod forever. Former NFL player, Harvard Business School grad, former president of the NFL PA, former COO of the NBA PA, now a writer for ESPN's The Undefeated. You can see him regularly on Get Up and First Take and Highly Questionable. And you can go read his most recent piece on The Undefeated, How Seattle's Richard Sherman Pick in 2011 Changed the Next 10 Years of the NFL. Um, Dominique fascinates me, and I wanted to have him on in part because I never really know where his brain is going to take a conversation on debate shows or radio shows we've done together. Like, he always has insight that I never thought of before. And often his experiences on the field and in union meetings and working with the players associations really affect his view of the professional sports world. And makes me see things differently. Uh, so we talk about him growing up and leaving for college early. The moment he realized in his NFL career that football was a business and not just a dream for him and others. Uh, the advice he got from a teacher at Harvard that changed his life. How he reluctantly joined us media folks. Um, then got shadow banned from SportsCenter for talking about sex toys. Uh, and we even managed to drag our friend Pablo Torre. I think you guys will like this. So I've been trying to have Dominique Foxworth on the podcast for quite some time, a very long time, not even counting the most recent time when he just kind of forgot and double booked himself. But I'm talking way before that. I've been trying to get Dominique Foxworth on this pod. I think he's one of the most fascinating people at ESPN and in the sports world and has such interesting insight about things that I want to see where that brain came from and how he came into being who he is. So let's go way back. You were born in England. So there's an interesting fact. Uh, and then you you had a bit of the British in you before you came to the States, right? You were there for a significant time. Nope. I was there for about for less than a year. So my dad oh. and was in the military. So we were stationed over there. So I was born on an American military base and I was not there long enough to to get the sexy accent. But I That's came back. To, I know. It's unfortunate. <laughs> I did all right for myself, though, Sarah. You don't have to worry about me. <laughs> but, I met your um, wife, and I'm sure before that you were doing fine as well. Oh <laughs> uh, no, no, not before that. It, <laughs> no, life started when we, that. yeah, life started <laughs> when we started dating. So yeah, um, we moved back uh, before I have any memories, and uh, spent most of the time in, in Baltimore. Again, my dad was in the military, so. We lived in Indianapolis for a couple of years. Then we came back to Baltimore. And then he, which was like one of the worst periods in my life, was he was stationed in Pennsylvania for a couple of years. And we stayed in Baltimore. And I just remember very vividly uh, going to the airport uh, every couple of weeks to either pick him up or drop him off and, and crying a lot on both Aww. occasions. So just because you missed him, that's why it was bad? Yeah, I don't know. It's just painful for you, a little kid, and you're like, I don't know, your concept of time is kind of weird, and it's like, 
hey, dad's getting on airplane. He's coming back, but he's getting on airplane. You won't see him for a little while. It's, it's a tough right. thing. I really love my dad. He was and still do. He's still hanging in there. Did your mom uh, work? Uh, yeah, she worked, but she didn't as much have a career as much as she had jobs. So she, uh, after my brother and I were kind of old enough to start taking care of ourselves, she stopped kind of doing that. And my dad retired from the military and they started a company where they were kind of doing interpersonal development training for uh, local Baltimore area companies. And they did that for a while. So that was kind of the, and, and since then they are like, nerds, I guess, or wannabe nerds like me. They've both gone back to school and gotten more and more degrees. That's excellent. And that does explain a lot about about who you are. So growing up, obviously, I know you, you got into football, but growing up, what else were you into? Other sports, music, studies? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I kind of was into all the normal things, I guess. I guess that's a loaded thing to say, but like there was time when I went through phases where I was Mr. Hip Hop, where I would break down lyrics with my friends. And then there are also times when I was obsessed with like Marvel, uh, like the X-Men cartoons. I went through all those things. Football was always the constant. And I would never say that I was obsessed with school necessarily, but I was competitive and and uh, arrogant, I guess, as a little kid. So it was kind of like, I wasn't going to not do better than the kids in class around me. So like I, I wanted to do well just from a competitive standpoint. And I, my mom still has a, a painting that I made in like third grade art or something that um, we were supposed to do like a future portrait of ourselves and like our career. So I said I wanted to be a football player and a part-time pediatrician. So I painted a, <laughs> standard. A, a, yeah, I painted a man with half of his body with like football uniform. The other half was a doctor. And then there was like a sports car in the background and my idea of a hot wife when I was like, nice. Eight so you, you painted Myron roll basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he pulled that off. Uh, yeah. I did not. But I mean, I mean, his football career. Meh, meh. Uh. <laughs> it's better. Than, I mean, he got drafted higher than I did, so I can't, That's right. I can't really give him too much of a hard time. Um, so you were in high school, obviously, a fantastic football player, Baltimore Sun, first team All-Metro, All-Baltimore County. Um, you graduated early from high school. What's that was a, and I think I remember listening to an interview you did with with Dan Levitard that that was essentially football encouraging you to leave early so you could start focusing on collegiate football as soon as possible. Is that correct? Yeah, the year before I think Philip Rivers did it, and that was like the first I'd ever heard of it. And I was a good student, so my high school coach was like, "Hey, you should do the same thing." And I looked into it and saw what credits I needed to to get to get there, and I, I got those credits all in the first half of my um, senior year. And the second half of my senior year was challenging <laughs> because I moved on to campus. And again, this I was like the second person, as far as I know of, in the country to do this. So there was no program for this. They dropped me At into- Maryland, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They dropped me into spring ball where we're playing full contact football against grown men who had a full off season, a full regular season of football to- to um, build their bodies up and get accustomed to it. And then they just dropped me into college level classes after I'm coming from Baltimore County Public School where I was my senior year, I was chilling. So I still have my um, ID 
because I it was after like a month that I finally got around to getting my picture taken for my ID. And I look like I was going through hell. Like there's no <laughs> smile. My hair was all over the place and uh, terrible. I think I had like acne and I just looked depressed. But when I see that picture, I remember how difficult that period was. What was the conversation like with your parents when the opportunity came up between, hey, you get a head start in college, you, you know, balancing sports and, and football might be tough or, or academics and football might be tough. So you get a head start. But also you're you're leaving your high school friends early. You don't get to have the typical experience of a senior year and graduation and the summer before school where you hang out with your friends and cry about how you're not going to see each other and make each other really cre- like crazy mixtapes. Or is that just me? <laughs> I mean, a lot of mixtapes. A lot of mixtapes. Oh my god! All the songs were very the emo. What was the oh my gosh! Song? I, I mean, know. definitely Tom Petty. Like you and I will meet again. Um, you know what I mean? Like the most <laughs> yeah. emo, like acting like you're never going to see these people again. And in some cases, later you were like, that probably would have been preferred. I, I really grew out of you as a friend. But um, oh god, all the all the mixtapes with all the sad songs. Oh uh, yeah, we did. I didn't make those. I remember making mixtape for a valentine's present uh when i was in college and i was broke and i like made a mixtape for a girl and i used all the song titles to like write a a story type of thing and then but then i then i got really good at football i didn't have to try that hard anymore yeah yeah (laughs) yeah that that makes sense that checks out wait so what were the conversations like with your parents we never had one honestly like I, i i was always kind of um maniacal I guess or like very very focused and and driven and that's not to say that I wasn't having fun or anything like that but I never had these conversations with my parents like I didn't drink until I was 35 uh, and like do it because I really believed that like it was going to make me a worse football player so I wouldn't do it so like I, it, it and my parents didn't second guess when I brought up this idea they're like okay that's what you want to do go do it and they I think they trusted me and they knew I would, could handle myself but you asking me this question right now is the first time anyone's ever asked me to consider it. I wish that I wish that you had been around because that was a real question that I wish someone would have asked me because I was not ready for what I was in for. Yeah, that's kind of surprising just because it sounds like your parents are thoughtful and intellectual and balanced. And um, but but if your own maniacal nature towards being the best and competing uh, drove your decision making, then maybe it wasn't something that you faltered on and it didn't have them questioning it either then. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think they I, I was a kind of mature at that point for somebody that age. So I think they weren't as worried about it. I do remember my parents going after they dropped me off on campus. They went directly to the airport and went to Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my mom was was crying uh, on our way. She didn't do it on Aww. campus, but she was she told me later she was crying. Then the next day was my first day of lifting and I couldn't lift because I was only 17. Oh. So she had to find the um, like the business center of the hotel so they could fax her a permission slip, essentially, to oh. sign and fax oh. back. Not that you couldn't physically do it, that you were <laughs> no, not no, allowed no. to because of, of your age. Yeah. Wait, so yeah, take me to that, Not maybe not picture day itself, but that time because there is such a there's such at least for me and I think for a lot of people there's such a comfort in arriving on campus and the way they walk you through it everyone's in the same line getting their books and their picture and you get your RA who walks you around campus and you know 
you know, you probably have a crush on them because they're a junior and they seem like they know what everything's all about. And then they always try to convince the cute girls in their group that their frat is the cool <laughs> one. And it takes you a couple of weeks to realize that they're giant nerds. But that guy was always nice. Anyway, that might just be my personal experience. But I did feel like even with the with the track team and even though I had gone to like a, an event or two in the Chicago area for people from Chicago who were headed to school to, to my college, there was still such a nice feeling of we're all in this together. You were not all in this together. That's one one person, right? No one else on the team was there early? Uh, nope, it was just me. There was no mm. cute guy to, to tell me his threat <laughs> was awesome. Uh, there was none of that. It was just me and art history. I remember that class specifically because I remember going there and sitting in a lecture where they would sh- show slides and tell you what culture this slide uh, or this mask or painting was from. And I just sat there. I was like, okay, cool. I did that for a few weeks and then we had midterm. And I wasn't taking notes because I just came from high school. And then the midterm was they would show us a bunch of brand new pictures and I would have to like pick out the the attributes and say, oh, this must be from the Northeast of whatever right. during this time period because of the eyebrows. <laughs> and I was just like completely flunked it because I just been sitting in the lectures before like dozing off. Like, all right, well, I guess this is college. Wow. Okay. There's so much here. It's really, it's, it's remarkable. Okay. So you end up having tremendous success there as a player though. You started every game for three years, all Atlantic coast conference honors three times. Um, so the football seemed to come pretty easily to you, or did you feel like it took a while to find your spot there? Uh, the early start helped a lot because all the stuff that I was going through, uh, during spring was what the guys who had come in were going through, um, when they got there in the fall. And I probably also had the advantage of being kind of uh, unique in that a bunch of the older DBs took me under their wing because I was the only one there and I probably got some extra time with coaches because spring ball, we're not, we're preparing for the spring game. We're not preparing for an actual game. So that was nice. It was painful at the time because I was the only one out there making really egregious mistakes and nothing would go unnoticed because there was nobody else out there to commiserate with after practice. Like, man, Coach Shore is a jerk, isn't he? He's like, no, you're you're the one. You're the one who's messing up <laughs> because everyone else is up to speed. But at that point, then we got to the season and we had a really like a surprisingly great season. We were undefeated. Uh, we went into Florida State and we lost barely to Florida State because um, I think it was Javon Walker went off on the corner who was starting at that moment. Then the following week, I got the my first start as a freshman. And it was a primetime 8 o'clock game against Clemson. If we beat them, we won the ACC championship. And, of course, they went after me, and I, I had a really good game, and we won. And, and it just was a good start. And they tore up the campus and burned stuff, as kids do. And it was a really fun way to spend your freshman year. Yeah. What about the what about the studies? Uh, did you pick up on those eventually, or did you find oh, yeah. you didn't need to? It just it um after I got that first little culture shock where I was like, oh, I'm supposed to take notes and pay attention. Like college, <laughs> and maybe it's different in different schools, but it wasn't that hard. Like once I started to pay attention and do the things I was supposed to do and study and take advantage of study hall and whatever, and there's enough resources within football with tutors and take notes like school was fine, but I made a decision. I remember uh, when it's time to make um, your major decision, I wanted to be a computer science major. And the academic advisor 
like we have our special football academic advisor, which is outside of the normal advisor was like, mm-hmm. okay, so this is going to have labs and all these things that fall during practice time. And it was implied that means you can't do this. <laughs> so I was like, all right, so what are we going to do? And I chose a different major, uh, American studies, which was a major that was kind of unique in the sports because everyone was kind of communications, criminal justice, kind of the big sports majors at Maryland. Mine was not, didn't fall into that category, but it was something I was interested in. And it was also something that I thought was manageable because it's to nobody's benefit for me to be a computer science major. It's to all of our benefits for me to be an awesome cornerback. (laughs) Uh, So you get drafted by the Broncos in the third round, 97th overall pick in 2005. Then you got traded to the Falcons in 08 for a conditional seventh round pick in the 09 draft. And what do you, what are the biggest takeaways? Because I want to get into your post football career. I think that's the the most interesting. But what are your biggest takeaways from your time with with the Broncos and the Falcons? Well, the Falcons got a steal, a conditional seventh round pick. <laughs> Jeez, that's painful. I was much better than that. But um, I think that that year in Atlanta was probably the toughest year of my life, and also the best year of football I, I played. But that was when I was old enough to like no longer and in, in seasoned enough, I guess, or, or scarred enough to no longer believe completely in the kind of football fairy tale and just accept that this was a business and that if I didn't play well that particular season, then I was going to be like a 26 year old dude who played in NFL, which is cool, had a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank, which is plenty, but also had chosen a major that was based on being available to play football, had spent the first four years out of college, like hitting people, which unless there's some sort of bouncing job out there, it doesn't really, it's not applicable um, work experience. And like all the off seasons were off seasons, all the summers and winters when people are getting internships and networking, like I was doing football things. So like it all kind of hit me when I got traded to Atlanta the year after Michael Vick went to jail. So everyone thought Atlanta was going to be terrible. And I was at the back of the bench on a bad team. And I was like, all right, so this is it. That was the first time when I considered business school. I was like, this is it. I'm going to have to find a new career because this is not going to work out well. And it was really, frankly, kind of depressing to feel like you have reached your dream and then realize it ain't it. And so I ended up playing well and signed a big deal with Baltimore. Um, And then I could go to business school with a little less stress. And I can think about the second career uh, and a little um, feeling a little bit more free. Do you think that realization made you work harder or was it just a matter of right place, right time? Um, I hate to admit it, but I think it did. I think there's something about scarcity that you can't fake. Mm-hmm. And as much as I hate when people are like, football players shouldn't get guaranteed contracts because they they won't work as hard or or whatever. Like there's something psychologically true about that. I would argue against it because I think it's unfair and and unethical in some ways, but I do understand that you can't, we all know that like you can't fake scarcity intensity that you have when you got an hour left before an assignment is due or like everyone knows that feeling and it, and it frankly, it brings out a focus in all of us that that can't be fake. That that's one thing that I noticed about, um, I would I say this about Ray Lewis. Uh, 
I, when I played with him, there was an intensity week in and week out that was like, either you are incredibly mentally strong or mentally like empty. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but there's no in between. Like he, he right. was out there on meaningless games against the putrid Browns when we had the division locked up and he'd be in the tunnel before the game, like near tears. And like it yeah. mattered to that much to him. And and by this time, by the time I got there, he he was already going to the Hall of Fame. He was already Ray Lewis. So yeah. I, and I was like, yeah, I really want to win this game, but I ain't about to cry. Like it's not that intense, <laughs> you know? But that's I mean, that and many other things are differences between um he and I. You and Ray Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. A <laughs> couple of things. Um <laughs> So did getting the deal change your impression of everything and make it feel like the dream again? Or was it from that point on, you looked at football a bit differently? Yeah, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, as they say. Mm. I think it was a gradual process. So when I got to college, like I mentioned, we were the team was terrible the year before I got there. I got there, we won the ACC championship. The head coach, Ralph Friedgen, immediately signs a $10 million extension and gets like a marketing deal with local Cadillac dealership and all the coaches are driving Cadillacs when they were driving 10 year old Corollas the year before. And we all got a swag bag with sweatshirts in it. And I think like a portable <laughs> DVD player. And that was the first time when I was like, Oh, so this is some bullshit. <laughs> like that, that was the first moment when I thought that, but it, it doesn't, it just like puts a seed in your head. And then I think had I like I had a good career, a great college career, but had I been like a first round draft pick, like pr projected in that way, I think maybe I would have been blinded to some of the other things. But then I get drafted a third round where it's like right. you haven't even made the team. You get drafted on third round and I have to fight again to get on to make sure I make the roster. And then the team that I played for and played well for in Denver traded me away. I was like, oh, and so it's just like. It chips, it chips away as you get older and more things happen mm -hmm. that it just chips and chips away until you realize like, oh, this, this is just a business. And I think there are so many players who I talk to who don't feel that way and they were in different situations than me or, or whatever. But, and there are other players who I think look at it a lot worse than I, than I do. But I think it all kind of hinges on the experience that you had. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, I'd like a word. What is your favorite word? I think my favorite word is obviously, obviously. Did I pronounce it? I mispronounced my favorite you word. Might have, yeah, you might have stumbled <laughs> on your favorite word because you were so excited to share it. <laughs> um, I, I was thinking about this and it may be more of a crutch than a favorite word, but I say obviously a lot when I'm talking on TV or when I'm just talking with friends, it feels like it's kind of like my, um, but it's like, obviously, and things aren't always obvious that I'm saying obviously <laughs> too. And then I hear it in my head and hope that no one else caught it and just keep on rolling. 
Obviously. Okay. Uh, so obvious has its roots in Latin, dates back to the 1580s, and it used to more mean frequently met with. Um, that's kind of obsolete now. And now, of course, it's you know plain to see or evident. Uh, and that usage is traced back to the 1630s. Um, and we all have our, our TV and radio ticks. Yours is obviously, mine is, it's interesting. Uh, which 99% of the time means I'm trying to think of what's interesting. Uh, the question I'm going to ask a guest, a response to a thoughtful point from a co-host. Um, yeah, a lot of times when I'm killing time thinking of something, I'll say, you know, it's interesting while I try to think of it. I also start a lot of sentences with, so uh, I'm working on it. I'm working on that and the ums and everything else. Speaking of great words. you going to learn today. The word of the week is... So we were talking about Mother's Day earlier, and this word comes from Mama Spain, my mama, uh, palaver. And I, I hope she wasn't listening to this podcast when she thought of it, because one of the secondary definitions of the word is to talk unproductively and at length. Something I have certainly been accused of before. <laughs> As a noun, palaver means unnecessarily elaborate or complex procedure, uh, dating back to 1733 from palavering. A long talk, a conference, a tedious discussion. And it was sailor slang from Portuguese, according to Edim Online in West Africa. That was a Portuguese word, and it sort of became a trader's term for negotiating with the natives. And then the English word picked up from there. So, in a sentence, we were meant to have a nice Mother's Day brunch, but Sarah dominated conversation with palaver about her plans for the Chicago Red Stars home opener. That's right, people. The schedule's out. May 22nd, SeatGeek Stadium. The whole regular season NWSL schedule is out now. So go check it out. Buy tickets. Let's f***ing go. That's what she said. Now let's get back to the interview. So you end up getting the deal um, that kind of changes things for you, but then some injuries occur, and eventually in 2012, you decide to retire. But while you're playing... um, during the majority of your football playing career, you are already setting the the stage for the next things you're going to do because you get elected an NFLPA player representative. Then you become the vice president of the NFLPA executive committee, the youngest player ever to be named that. And then right after retiring, it looks like you were elected president. So, you know, how much did that inner workings and conversation about how the game works probably influenced the mindset you had? Yeah, I think that probably added to it because so I, I got elected. The the president is an active player's role. So I got elected in my last season, but I was still recovering. So I was on the team, but I wasn't playing. And then the season after that or the year after that, I was still it's a two year term. So I'm still in office, but I retired. Um, so I think the negotiations took place for the 2011 CBA when I was executive committee member. And because I tore my ACL, I was available in a way that other people weren't. So I was at every single negotiation. I don't think that anybody else was. So I was heavily involved in it. And it was eye opening, I guess, to, to hear the way that the um, NFL and the team owners, the way they talked about the players, they talked about like a business and they used the words like assets. And I remember we wanted to talk about taking care of older players. And there was an owner who had bought his team relatively recently. And uh, in so many words said, those players ain't do nothing for me. So mm. we're like, we're not putting any money aside mm. to take care of them. And like experiencing a whole lot that, for you, they yeah. created an entire franchise that caused fans to have loyalty and keep coming back, whether your team is shitty or not. Oh, interesting. 
wish that you were there, but I don't think it, <laughs> it mattered whether whatever rationale we were putting out there or not, because to be honest with you, maybe he believed it or he didn't believe it, but in negotiations, it's right. It's yeah, it's that's the, that was the position that he had to take. And there were many positions that I took that were like, I didn't feel like completely passionate about to um, argue for better rights for our players and so and, and more money. So I think that experience definitely also opened my eyes to like, yeah, the at least in those meetings, they treat it like a business. In the locker room, it so rarely feels like that. It's a, a bad situation if you're ever in a locker room where it feels like you're right. you're fighting for like, uh, or you're competing against your, your teammates for money or opportunities. So one of the things that's come up, a couple of things you said, you know, being in those meetings with Jerry Jones kind of let you know that these owners weren't smarter than everybody. They had found themselves in, in advantageous situations or had at least worked their way up to being very rich or had been born into being very rich, but that didn't necessarily mean they were smarter or more business savvy and that you would get into, you know, screaming matches and you would go head to head with them. I imagine based solely on some of the BS stereotypes you hear from coaches who say they don't want to draft players who are too smart because then they might not care about the game as much or they might talk back. And by my own experiences of coaches not really enjoying that I would remember exactly what they said two weeks earlier <laughs> and bring it up when they would contradict themselves two weeks later, I would imagine you weren't yeah. a favorite of everybody. Um, yeah, probably not. I mean, surprisingly, and again, this might've been negotiation ploys, but surprisingly, like the, uh, the owners of the teams tried to like intimidate me early on. And to be frank, like, I don't want to act like I'm some tough guy. Like I'd already gotten paid. So like they weren't going to bully me. I was here to do what was best for the people that, um, were coming after me. And to be frank, right. if I had not already gotten paid, I would have been nervous. And I remember early negotiations, they brought in Ozzie Newsom to a negotiation. And I was like, he was the guy who um, who signed me to that big deal, the general right. manager for the Ravens. And it's like, okay, <laughs> like I'm supposed to be scared. And they did this to all the people. Uh, they brought in Jim Ursay when Jeff Saturday was there and they brought in mm. people like that. And I was like, nah, that's not going to work. And then I remember having a couple screaming matches where it's like, I would never start the screaming or the disrespect, but it was like, you're not going to let it, I'm not going to let it slide. I'm not going to let you think that this is okay. And honestly, I look back and I wish I would have handled it differently. Like rather than like bowing up with them, I wish I'd have just like diffused the situation like casually, like that would have been a better response that would have shown like, I I'm good. Like, I'm not scared. Right. Yet. You know, right. but I was actually kind of like, look, I'm going to show you. I'll, I'll f you up in this room. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that actually is going to get us somewhere. Yeah, but right. after those early stages, the the script completely flipped where Jerry Richardson, who like it was, it's been written about him and I having a couple mm -hmm. little verbal run-ins. After that, he invited me to lunch and was like, you remind me of myself because he was a mm -hmm. player who ended up making enough money to buy a team. And it's like, I, I would love to take you under my wing when this is all over, blah, blah, blah. So I think it was just all tactics, you know, they're like, all right, well, the stick's not going to work. So maybe we'll try right, to care. For sure. Right. Right. Um, so you end up uh, serving in that role. Now you're retired. As you mentioned earlier, you get to go to business school, you go to Harvard business school, get your MBA and 
how long before you decide to get into the, the to the business of basketball and working for the NBPA? Yeah, that was in school. So um, really, so still, yeah. st- still studying. Huh. <laughs> yeah. So my first year uh, of business school, business school is two years. My first year, I was still president of the Players Association in the NFL, and then um, Billy Hunter got ousted as the as the the um, executive director of the NBA PA. So the search started for the next executive director. I was involved in that search. I fell short, but I impressed the players enough that they suggested to Michelle Roberts that she interview me to bring me on. So she interviewed me and towards the end of my second year of business school, she offered me the chief operating um, officer job, which um, I I took and I was working. I was uh, in Boston, obviously, but I would drive to or take the train in New York and do that part time while I'm still finishing up school. And anybody who's been to business school knows the second year of business school, man, at least at the school that I went to, it's not that challenging. So I, or you can make it what you want, frankly. And I made it pretty easy because I knew I had this opportunity. So I, I did that until school was over. Then I moved to New York and worked there and really enjoyed parts of the job. But uh, at the time, my wife was pregnant with our third child and we had two children living in Manhattan. And I mm-hmm. was working from like 7 a.m. to like 8 at night. And we were stuck in a tiny New York apartment and my wife was pregnant and it just was, it was just too much strain on the family, especially considering that I had the financial wherewithal to not have to put us through that. So then I quit that job, not knowing what I was going to do next, just planning to move back or move to DC where my wife is from. I want to go back really quickly because as a Cornell grad, I wanted you to assign the name of the school that you said was actually pretty easy. I think you, I think you said, which <laughs> yeah, school was it? That's pretty easy. Harvard. Yeah. yeah. That's what I've I mean, heard. The business, that's what school. I've heard. the business school. At least. Like, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, completely... probably, probably all of it. Yeah. It's just, this is a good name. Good name. <laughs> <laughs> completely frank with you is that the business school is hard to get into, but like you got to try to, to fail out. <laughs> and my, my right. wife actually went to the law school, um, in the ed school there. She went to the law school, um, well before I went to the business school and she went to the ed school while I was in business school. And the law school actually is tough. <laughs> At least the first year, I remember her like, she had to read like 300 pages in a night and be nervous about cold calls and all that stuff. I, I didn't have the, that same anxiety about business yeah. school. Like, sh- show you were up. just getting your, you were just getting your MR degree, right? You're just <laughs> securing yourself as, as a husband. And, you know, as, as they always say about men in business school, just going to, sh- to find a wife, of course. That's, um, that's, what they, that's what they say. Yeah. Um, so you've got two young kids, a third on the way, and you leave this job. I mean, did you feel like after having worked with both the NFL and the NBA that something relating to those kind of jobs, unions or sports right. business or something was what you wanted to do? Or did you have an op- a clean slate for the world right. and career? It's not as much about what I wanted to do, but I realized that that was the best place for me to go professionally. So like I went to business school wanting a clean slate. And like you mentioned, I went to these negotiations and I kind of came to the realization that I don't mean this as disrespect, but the guys who were these multi-billionaires owning these teams, like I'd always assumed that like growing up in like a middle-class household in Baltimore, like I assumed that people who made it there, like I believed all the stories, all the heroes' journeys, tales that are told. Mm -hmm. It's like, they just outworked everybody. They were so smart. 
I believed it. And so when I went in there to meet him and I was like, oh, <laughs> like you guys probably worked really hard and, you, and you're of reasonable intelligence, probably above average, but like, yeah, special. Like I expected them to be as exceptional at brain stuff as I was at football stuff, mm-hmm. because like you aren't just going to find somebody off the street that could keep up with a professional athlete, but you can find people off the street that can keep up uh, intellectually with these guys. So like that was the shock. And then I was like, oh, well, let me go to business school. And when I get out of business school, I'll turn this money into like billions of dollars. And then counterintuitively, I went to business school and like all the soft classes that they tell you to take that you think won't mean anything. Like they they got me. And yeah. I started thinking about like um, the value of my time and the value of my life and like what is more important. And this professor said something to me that always stuck with me was um, the operating system that got you to this point may not be the operating system that will take you forward. Just meaning like as a computer analogy, right. like this uber focused, super aggressive person that I was to, to get to Harvard business school and to get to the NFL, like I'm going up against something new. Maybe I should look right. at a new program. And, and so I kind of did. Did he say that directly to you or to the class? Uh, I was to the class. It was one of his go-to lines yeah. that he used. It's every interesting year, though. Sure. Right. And honestly, so few of us really consider whether the skill sets that have helped us in certain spaces are the same thing that we should apply later. And in fact, um, unfortunately, sometimes they're the opposite, um, at least in our business. Right. I, I heard Max Kellerman talk about one time because he has to fill two hours of first take. He goes home and just like unloads on his wife and gives like monologues. And she's like, please stop talking. Like stop I, monologuing at home. Right. But with our job, it's like everybody needs to hear our opinion on everything all the time. We're the most important voice. And then you like get out in the world where you're like, shut up, like get it yeah. together. Like this, you're not at work. Different. Yeah. So I don't have an operating I don't, system. I don't have that problem. And that's the, it's the weird thing for me is like, um, and my wife told me this a while ago. I was like, why don't you do more social media? Like that's, it's important to like me professionally. Right. Like, I don't like it. So I don't do it. <laughs> like, um, it's so funny when like some of my friends see me on TV or even like neighbors and stuff or people who've seen me at parties or know me, they're like, who is that guy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because when I go to parties, I stand on the side and chill and mind my business. When I'm at school functions, I don't speak to any other parents unless they speak to me. I, I'm not huh. the guy that is that is monologuing, that thinks that his opinion is most important, is trying to tell people everything. The only thing that I do is I, I try to engage in intellectual conversations everywhere I go because it's my own personal insecurity. It's like, I know that the first thing that anyone knows about me before I get there is that I play football because that's like the most unique and interesting thing because it's so rare to have like a professional football player in the room. So like, I assume that they have all these assumptions about me. So my own insecurity is what drove me to go to Harvard Business School. It's also like mm. what drives me to like make some some in-depth geopolitical statement when we're talking <laughs> when we're talking about high when we're talking about hot dogs or we're talking right. about girls 10-year-old soccer right. i'm like you know what you know what putin's up to right and then i leave it at that and then i and then i move on because i'm insecure but you don't do that in regular life which is interesting um that's because that you, you and I like yeah. have a real relationship. <laughs> like I don't feel like I right. need to impress you or like trick you at any point. It's like, yeah, you actually, <laughs> right. actually actually like you, you actually like me. So like we're good. Anybody right, right. who's catching these geopolitical takes, I don't really like you like that, but I need you to know that I ain't no punk. 
That's right. That's right. Um, I actually think it sounds like um, I so one of my good friends was a Olympian, a pole vaulter. Uh, she went to two Olympics and she, like whenever we hang out, no one would ever know that if I wasn't around because I'm like her hype gal. Like right. I'll be like, I'll like let it slide in whenever there's the tiniest crack of a door where it might be relevant to the conversation. But well, she went to the Olympics twice. And that's me because I'm insecure yeah. that I was never the person I wanted to be in sports. I was like, okay, I did division one track. Like that was good. But like the dream is the Olympics. So like if I went, I would want everyone to know it all the time. So I'm like, she must want that. And she's like, I'm good. Cause like, I don't have to be a try hard cause I'm amazing. And I'm like, oh, I got to try real hard um which is like yeah, they always say you know, if you're just, great at something you don't need to tell anyone if you're yeah. good you're gonna tell everyone because yeah. yeah i mean I, um, I i think it's just you when you when you're when it is your whole life for a certain amount of time I mean, that's it's not true about everybody but if you aspire to be something else it gets a little frustrating but i think there are plenty of i mean i know this yeah. to be the case plenty of my former teammates who like you check in on on instagram or you check in on 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 Twitter, like they, they still posting pics from college when they were, <laughs> when they scored three touchdowns in one game, the old, the old, um, what's the name? Uh, Al Bundy. There you yeah. go. Polka, Polka. Yeah, Al Bundy. <laughs> yeah. I, I never want to be that guy. Yeah. Um, so were you the kind of person that was like, I'm never going to be in the media, yep. the media people. And then yep. how did you end up at ESPN? <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I'm never going to be in the media. Um, again, tied to this wanting to prove to myself and to everyone else that I'm more than just like a football guy and like I can do other things. But I quit the job in New York and we still had time on our lease and the kids were in um, a, a school up there. So we we're finishing out and I just had free time. So I started writing. I'd always loved to write. Uh, I led like a writing group at um, Boys and Girls Club my rookie year or no, my second year when I was in Denver. And I used to write a lot when I was in college. I just liked to write. So I started writing. I wrote about um, the concussion movie with Will Smith. And then I wrote mm-hmm. about... Uh, Did you tell James the truth? <laughs> <laughs> well done. I mean, I, sh- I should have known that that was coming from you. You, you. Can't, you cannot let one of those jokes just slide by. <laughs> um, I, did, I did tell the truth. And it did pretty well. And I wrote about... I think James Blake was a tennis player who got like harassed mm-hmm. by the police in New York. I wrote about yep. that. I wrote about a couple other issues uh, a- involving race. And then it was just coincidental that the undefeated was also being created, which is the intersection of race and sports and culture. And it was launching out of DC. And so it gave me this opportunity that, that felt different. Like, I don't, I, I don't want to go talk about, people playing football, but this was like, no, you can talk about people playing football, but you can also talk about these bigger things. Of course, now I just end up on get up and, and, uh, <laughs> and first take and around the horn, highly questionable. But, um, fortunately, I guess this summer was like, <laughs> I was a, a superstar at that moment because there are only so many people who, I don't want to say are qualified. I think everyone is qualified to talk about it, but only so many people who feel comfortable. And you're one of those people who feel comfortable going into those spaces. So like mm-hmm. this summer when the pandemic hit and the George, George, George Floyd stuff started happening, like our show, all of our shows became something different. And, and I, like when I do those things, like I really enjoy the job at a different level. And when I write like the, 
the piece I wrote about Richard Sherman that just came out last week was a lot about the things that we're talking about in this conversation, a lot about context and opportunity and race and, and culture and, and, uh, and valuing people. And I, I think I have a sentence in there about like the fallacy of the, of the hero's journey and like all that stuff. Like that feels powerful and important to me, which right. is why yeah, so I talked to Pablo about that piece the other day and he was making fun of me. He's like, wow, everyone's moving away from long form journalism because there's no money or anything <laughs> in it. You're moving towards it. And I was like, well, I like it. Like it's challenging. It feels artistic. It feels meaningful. Yeah. Like it feels better than yelling at somebody about whether Carson Wentz is good or overrated or whatever. Yeah, I, I think there's so many different little nooks and crannies in the business and finding the ones that actually serve you. And maybe every once in a while, you still got to do the other ones. And they don't, you know, feed your soul as much, but you know, they pay the bills or they keep you around so that you can do the other stuff that you're into. Um, I want to talk about <laughs> SportsCenter. Um, are you still currently banned? Oh, I was never officially banned. It was oh, like okay. a it's like a shadow ban. They never told, they just, I mean, you know how this business works. Like no one ever tells you anything directly. It was like, I, I um, said some things on SportsCenter that made some people uncomfortable. And right. then, so I, if I remember correctly. There was a baseball player who had a sexual toy in his locker that was visible right. that resembled a, a male genitals, male, uh -huh. male genitals. And um, you decided to offer up, expertise by way of teammates perfect opportunity you want me to take <laughs> you in the locker room i took you in the locker room a teammate <laughs> bought the entire team some toys and they weren't the male mm -hmm. toys they were female toys so right i did i talked about that i did mm -hmm. a hilarious little bit about it personally my personal really opinion. did like, it involved you the microwave yeah yeah, yeah. As you gotta heat it up more realistic. <laughs> As a comedian, I personally, I mean, you are a comedian. Yeah, yeah I appreciate it. the fact that, yeah. So they prior to that, I've been doing Sports Center once a week. And then that week, they're like, you think we could up it to twice a week? Because every week I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd come on and like, I it was only like five minutes. So right. I always have like some real hot stuff and I always have something funny. And I'm like, all right, I could do that five minutes a week, come up with a little yeah. bit. So then. This particular bit was a little too blue for them. <laughs> <laughs> and then they normally call me the following or email me the following week to like schedule a time. I didn't get an email. Yeah. Haven't heard from him since until <laughs> until um the summer. We're in the summer here. All right, George, you're back. George Floyd starts popping off. Yeah. Guess who's back on sports? Guess center? who's back? <laughs> the shadow ban ended. They needed you. They forgot all about the flashlight. Um so how did being covered as an athlete affect how you cover athletes now? I know for something like a long form profile, you're hopefully going to be looking for the humanity there and being fair. But do you, do you think about that? Cause there's so many different styles. I mean, there's athletes who come in hot and they are ready to take on anybody, regardless of whether they were a former teammate or opponent. And then there are those who kind of always give you the vanilla stuff and you're like, Oh, they're so worried about what those guys think. Yeah, so I was never given the vanilla stuff, but I think the interesting thing is there's so much landscape to take up that is unexplored because there, like this modern age of media, there's more opportunity out there. In the past, there was not much more choice. So it was like, you go on and you don't have to say much. You played in NFL, you got this job, you're good. But now it's so much more, uh, it's so much more competitive and it's, and if you look around, there's so much more opportunity. So like, I always try to take a unique perspective, which also includes 
the players' perspective because that's one thing I always hated is that the players would get on TV and forget that they were players. <laughs> and I understand, like, there's an easy way to do this job. And to be frank with you, like, I, I sometimes I'll, I'll mail it in on occasion. But most of the time, like, I prefer to do the hard way to do the job because it's fairer. And, and there is no need for another person to, when an athlete uh, gets a taunting penalty, like there's really no need for someone else to jump out and say, that was selfish. That was dumb. Like it's, it seems to me that nothing can be gained from that. Like there is value. And even if I wasn't the one to do that, cause I had never done anything like that. There's value to like exploring why something like that would happen because they're not idiots. Right. Like, and, and that's just one example, but generally I try to do that. And of course there's some instances where like, I am not looking for an opportunity to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. Like I, I don't need to go in there and try to try to defend a, a sexual assault or accused sexual assault or that sort of stuff. Like, but I do think that that that's the way I try to approach it. And I've messed up a couple of times that I, I regret because I, I think, sorry, I said I wasn't the monologue guy, but you ask good questions and I get rolling. <laughs> but the one thing I do have to remind myself all the time is that, what we do matters to these players' careers and these mm-hmm. coaches' careers. So I remember being really, really like critical of Bill O'Brien when he was at the Houston Texans and everybody was doing it. And I was piling on, making jokes, having a good time. And then he got fired not too long after. And I remember thinking like, I didn't take responsibility or feel culpable in that at all, but I do know that part of the reason why he had to go, if you look at his record and all that stuff, it wasn't that bad. Like they had some success. Part of the reason why he had to go is because he had become like a laughingstock, a pariah kind of, and we right. have some hand in that. And, and we have to understand that, that it's not just, we are here to entertain, but our entertainment impacts the way that players' careers and coaches' careers go. Yeah, he also traded DeAndre Hopkins, which was fucking stupid. Uh, but no, I agree with you. Okay, okay, okay. Trading DeAndre Hopkins <laughs> wasn't wasn't the dumb part. I think because DeAndre Hopkins, they they weren't going to resign him. He was coming on the end of his deal. Yeah. The, the rough part was what he got back. I think that was the tough what part. I think combine that with the Laramie Tunsil trade, yeah. it was a that wasn't his coaching though. That's the thing. It was actually a pretty good coach. It was the GM? It was the GM yeah. said, yeah, they gave him too much power. Yeah. Um, no, I agree with you though. Like I'm often thinking about, like I always want to be led by fairness, and I have to even sometimes stifle like jokes or things I want to say because I know that I can't also get across, you know, what I genuinely think about a situation, or I'm worried about, you know, how do I how do I not mock somebody who's just famous for being an athlete and doesn't deserve to have X or Y be made fun of? It's it's tough sometimes because it is. You sometimes get so comfortable in your job, you forget how many people are listening and paying attention, which can be great and can make for great content, but can also mean that later on you're like, oh man, that was just mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like didn't yeah, help, I, I, didn't help, didn't add anything, just mean. <laughs> I'm glad um, that you make me feel better about it because I, I, I do a weekly, I do Bomani's podcast with him every week. And he is somebody who kind of always seems like he is on top of these things. And I am not, I get comfortable, like the best stuff comes from me being comfortable, but that's also the riskiest stuff. And somehow, somehow Mm -hmm. um, he's able to do that without ever actually getting himself in trouble, but I do it. And I'm always like, no flashlights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not just that though, but it's plenty of other stuff that 
that comes out of my mouth. But I mean, it's also back to the, the security, the security and stability that I have. It's like, all right, well, if I got to leave this industry, I just got to go. Right. Well, and it seems to me that you certainly would have success in plenty of other spaces, even though, um, you know, there might be some little part of you that's niggling at you that you ended up in the space that you wanted to get away from. I, I have full confidence that if you walked away from it, you'd be fine somewhere else. Uh, before we uh, let you go, I did want to ask you, you've been talking about unions and how you don't actually think that they are the best answer for something like the NFL. What what What's the ideal situation? What does it look like to you? Um, I think that the unions, with NFL unions specifically, which I, the one I know the most about, and I know a good amount about the NBA union, but if you look at the way they operated uh, before 1993, they were a, a trade association, which then opens up the league to antitrust law. And it's not fun or exciting, but right now the leagues operate as a legal cartel. So each team is an individual business, but they can coordinate because of the existence of the union. And so it's the point that I made in in the piece that got a lot of attention, I guess, like four years ago, was that the union protects the leagues more than it protects the players at this point. Mm -hmm. Like their ability to have a draft, their ability to have a salary cap, their ability to penalize um, teams for different things. Their ability to go out and negotiate for those enormous billion dollar um, TV rights deals is all predicated, all predicated on them to being able to function as one uh, cartel. And none of that is legal. Like salary caps aren't legal. Um, drafts aren't legal. Like this is there's a reason why none of that stuff exists in the rest of of the uh, in the rest of capitalism, frankly. So right. I think there was a point when the union was needed, but I feel like right now we get to a point where they might be better off going back to the trade association. So in 93 in the NFL, the only reason why the union came back was because the league demanded it as a, um, as a condition of the settlement. They're like, all right, we'll settle this lawsuit, but you guys have to be a union again. Because we don't need this antitrust stuff. So I, I, I don't want to say it as if this is a cure-all, because if it was, teams or uh, unions would have done this a while ago. It opens you up to a lot of other risks because it eliminates things like a salary floor. It eliminates a, a lot of the things that, that um, players rely on. And the cap also forces money into other players' hands. So it's not a perfect situation, but... I also look at this and I don't see, I see erosion and it's happening in all sports, no matter what people say it's happening in baseball, hockey, football, basketball, uh, the erosion of um, power, influence, wealth, uh, rewards, it's eroding from the players to the leagues. And I don't see a way to stop it as it's currently constructed because right now the incentives are quite obvious for a single player there is no incentive to actually endure a lockout or to strike. Right. Well, especially in the are, NFL. Yeah. You're looking you are guaranteed at, to lose more money than right. you make, well, even and, if you win big. And the long game for the owners is so clear because they'll own a team right. for probably their entire lives, decades at a time. So they lose a couple of years, they're fine. That could be an entire player's career. So in the NFL in particular, the leverage will never be there for the union to win on major things. Um, although you'd like to hope they'd do better than they did in that last deal, which – the more we learn about it, the more it looks like they just got fleeced. And signing a deal that's that long for a sport in any in any sport, really, considering the technological changes and the 
disruption of the entertainment industry and how we're watching sports and how deals are done and everything else. Like the length of that deal is the worst part of it. Yeah. I mean, the challenge about all that, and this is another time where it's like having been in that seat and negotiated a deal that people thought was awful. And uh, (laughs) like, I understand how difficult it is. So the reason for a long deal, at least back when we signed, because we signed a 10 year deal and that was like the first time that someone had done that. It was because under the belief that you could extract more from the mm-hmm. media partners with that type of, uh, of certainty, which then puts more in the salary cap, which puts more in benefits, which allows you to give more to former players and then puts more in the pockets of the current players. So it's, I mean, you, you, I, I guess we're having this conversation for the people that are, are listening because right. I know that, I know that you completely understand all these dynamics. It's complicated. Yeah, yeah, it's really complicated. Uh, we're out of time. But before I let you go, you do Ooh. have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your current career is canceled and so is anything related to sports. What do you do instead? Um... Be a really bad full-time dad. <laughs> There's a Mother's Day present right there. <laughs> uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, I don't know. I think that that season in Atlanta was pretty tough, but we already talked about that, so that's not fair. Um, oh, my, my son. My son fell from somewhere pretty high, mm. hurt himself, and it was terrifying. It's, it's, it's He's fine now. It was several Thanksgivings ago, but we had to go to emergency room and he's Ooh. okay. But I remember um, in that moment how my wife was very cool and I like make fun of her because she is a- an anxious person and she's like always worried about <laughs> everything all the time. And in that moment, she was stable and steady as hell. And I just remember thinking like, this is what you've been waiting for. Like afterwards, like <laughs> this, is, this is finally your moment. Like right. all the rest of life is not for you, but you are a crisis person because she right. was cool. And I was she's like, always thinking, ready for worst case scenario. And then when <laughs> yeah, the worst she, case scenario came, she's like, I'm ready. I'm, see, I'm ready. I told you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was oh. like frantic trying to make decisions oh. and do stuff. And she was just like, chill, like. It's like, don't you love him? But no, she's like, relax. Uh, Number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Uh, I already am. Want me to go get my wife? (laughs) (laughs) No, not a good joke. Oh, well. I knew it was coming. That's why. Uh, Yeah, you know me too well. I need better jokes. The best in the world at one thing. That's tough. I mean, I, I think about something that will make money, but then it's like, eh, <laughs> that seems I'm not actually going to be the best in the world. So I'd rather make myself look like a good person on your podcast. So <laughs> forgiveness, <laughs> forgiveness. Be for, wow. Forgiveness. The best in the world of forgiveness for one day. Yes, um, that's all I want. Number four, what current celebrity from music or politics or television or whatever, would you most like to be your best friend? Hmm. Celebrity. Um, Sarah Spain. <laughs> Maybe. Sorry, Mina. <laughs> Stole the oh, job. Yeah. yeah, she's out. I mean, I, I <laughs> Mina's a good consolation best buddy. Because <laughs> you're too cool uh, for me. I will. Uh, I'll let you get away with that, even though you evaded the real answer of 
I mean, I don't know. Give me a suggestion. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I don't really look. Uh, I mean, there's nobody in politics, obviously. I mean, maybe AOC. Like she seems. Yeah, pretty she seems cool pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can stay in the Bronx. The bodega guys seem like they're fun and they're yeah. around my age. So we you could definitely make that happen. That's easy. I feel like I feel like Pablo already hangs out with those guys. So you could oh, get never mind. I'm out. You could get thesis and marrow no, easy. No. Um, they like Pablo. Oh, uh, I know. Yeah. It's a, everybody's got that guy they keep around just to make themselves feel good. I'm sure that's what's going on there. <sighs> He's the um, police guy. We had a we had a police guy. <laughs> when I when I was in high school, we had a, a white tight end named Zach. Zach had to come everywhere with us just in case the cops showed up. <laughs> Send Zach out to talk to him. Oh, Pablo's like, here's the thing. <laughs> yeah, Pablo's it just smells there. like <laughs> marijuana, but it's legal in New York now, so they're good. Yeah. Um, number five. What's your biggest, mostly meaningless pet peeve? It's a bad one, but it's organization because I'm also not super organized, but the things (laughs) that I'm organized about, I get annoyed when people like mess up the things and like in my room or like my closet, like my spaces, Mm -hmm. they are messy in my own messy way. But like in communal spaces, like I need and having three young kids Mm -hmm. and a wife who is not like particular about those things does not make it's something that I've gotten used to. I don't know if it qualifies as a pet peeve anymore because I can't control it, but yeah, yeah, for it. sure. Yeah. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? That's a tough one. Um, I mean, I've, I've given up game winning touchdowns. That's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, the multiple times. So like we could pick any, any of several of them where all the eyes are on you in the stadium. You make this play, you win, you miss, you don't, uh, you, uh, you lose. That's a bad feeling. Yeah, to, that's to, a good one. To, Everybody yeah. else is like, I peed up. my pants in fourth grade, and you're like, thousands <laughs> of people were disappointed because of me. I let yeah. all of America down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, at, least an, at least an entire region. Like, I've given up those, and it doesn't feel good. And it's right. the worst part is when your teammates come over and like, man, it's okay. It's Happens okay. To everybody. It's you right. did Keep your best, fighting. man. <laughs> Shut up. You're like, that's worse. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Confidence. Interesting. No, I mean, I think we've had some of these conversations. Yeah. About, like, There's insecurity there, but. Insecurity. Like, I, I. You also seem very confident in many other ways. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, isn't that what insecure people do? Is yeah, like for sure. Yeah, they get yeah, all cocky so like, and shit, and you're like, I can see through you. I think that um, it might be a bit of a cop-out of an answer, but I also think that I view myself through the eyes of other people more than I'm comfortable with, where it's mm-hmm. like truly, truly, truly confident like people. And again, I bring up my wife. Like I feel like she's someone who is like that level of confident where it's like, yeah she does stuff and it's like and she hadn't even considered until i brought up like hey somebody might think this about that she hadn't even considered it and i'm like oh yeah that's so true i worry way too much about what people think right it's i do too and it's not just anybody because like i don't i don't get and i suspect you're this way too like i don't get too bothered by like twitter trolls and Mm -mm. stuff like that but like i do often worry about like what generally people think or people right. that I respect, like what are, what are they thinking about what I'm doing right now? Yeah. Rather than being like, I'm doing this shit. This is the shit. That yeah, I'm this doing. is fine. Yeah, I got this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number seven, any band or eight, any band dead or alive can play at your next party. Who is it? 
Jodeci. Jodeci. Okay. All right. I All like right. that. That's a new one. Uh, number nine. What would you I consider mean, your biggest failure? Hmm. Um, biggest failure. I've obviously failed a bunch of times. I hate when people say I wouldn't change anything <laughs> because like that's a stupid kind of lie. But like often the like narrative of my life, all the failures that I have, like I have like bounced back from them. So like I recast them in some other yeah. way that, that feels better. So like, I, I can't think of like a huge. That's how most successful people are on this. I always ask, cause I'm curious <laughs> yeah. if people have one, but most successful people don't dwell and they manage to re-spin it into, well, that led to this or that or that. <laughs> yeah. And then it's all bullshit. But, no, but, but I think I it's probably myself. part of, it's probably part of their success though. The people who get yeah. bogged down with where they let themselves or others down and then can't ever move past it are the ones who probably struggle in future endeavors. Finally, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Um, hot, kind, um, patient. Mm. Hot, kind, and patient. It's a good combo. Uh, it's a good combo. It's only three. We're good. Only okay. three. Yeah. All right. It's only three. Um, I would have gone smart, but you know, if you're confident in your choices, then you could stick yeah, with. Yeah. yeah. Let's take let's take hot out and go with smart. <laughs> smart, kind, and patient. Uh, if you had one of those things where people got to like, you know, you get to pick four of these. You have ten dollars, and it's like, mm -hmm. and then your <laughs> ideal man, and you're like, okay, so you know, nine dollars on tall, and then I got one dollar left. <laughs> what am I? <laughs> <laughs> just oh, me, just man. me, just me. Yeah, I was um, about to say that, that's not me. I'm <laughs> I'm slightly above average height, but no one would call me tall. Uh, thanks for doing this, Dominique. Worth the wait. No problem. It was fantastic. See you next week. See ya. We're not gonna do this again next week. Uh, we can. I got so much more to talk to you about. All right, I want you wait. to break down the women's NCAA basketball tournament and Mark <sighs> Emmert and inequality across sports and whether <sighs> unions work for women's sports and also what your third career is going to look like and <laughs> how you got your wife to marry you because she seems amazing. You know, all this she stuff. Is. She is. <laughs> um, I got her to marry me by um, everyone else being whack. <laughs> That's she looked around and was like, hey, hey why not? Um, thanks, dude. I really appreciate it. Oh yeah, one more thing. So this is a place for me to rant about things, rave about things, tell you what to read, watch, listen to. Sometimes I'll share a great story I found. It's really whatever's on my mind. And I already told you, what's on my mind is the NWSL schedule. For those uh, who don't know, I'm a co-owner of the Chicago Red Stars and we have a ton of weekend home games. So if you're near Chicago, you've always wanted to do a weekend in Chicago, come on out, hang out with me we got a lot of tailgate parties to announce in the coming weeks. For sure, May 22nd, the home opener. We're going to do a pregame bash. All the fans so excited to get back together safely. Uh, excited to get back into the stadium, which will be at limited capacity. So get your tickets um, and finally be able to get back to cheering on the squad. So go look up the NWSL schedule. Go find the Red Star schedule and buy a ticket and come hang out. It's going to be fun. In addition to that, if you haven't seen it yet, go watch Sound of Metal. It uh, was one of the movies nominated for a bunch of the Oscars, won a couple. Um, Riz Ahmed, the star of it, was nominated for Best Actor. Um, I run a charity called Here the Cheers. We'll be doing our 
fundraising campaign coming up in a couple months here, a little bit later this year than usual. Um, and it helps provide hearing aids and equipment to kids um, who are deaf or hard of hearing and helps them continue to participate in school, in sports, in activities and all that stuff. And I learned so much about the deaf community in creating this charity with a girl that I mentor Um and we've been at it for seven or eight, maybe nine years now. Um, and so over the course of that time, I've learned all about the fact that most insurance doesn't cover hearing aids and equipment, which is wild. And it can be up to $4,000 an ear. So when a family finds out that their child um, might be deaf or hard of hearing and um, might need something like this to help facilitate their schoolwork or activities, it can be a massive financial blow. So um, I've just gotten into more understanding around that community. And watching the movie was pretty incredible. The way that they help you understand what the protagonist is feeling, what he's hearing or not hearing, how he's hearing, and the choices and decisions that have to be made, especially if you suffer hearing loss um, midway through life. So it's a really powerful movie, uh, and the performances are fantastic. It's called Sound of Metal. Go check it out. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you have guest suggestions for me or questions or dilemmas, and you can always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Five stars, of course. Uh, thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She Said 